Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to read first 15 verses. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going... Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, His disciples came by night and stole Him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy Him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your goodness to us. We thank You that You would give us testimony, that You would speak to comfort Your people. Lord, we... We haven't earned or deserved our salvation. We haven't earned or deserved your, your word. We haven't earned or deserved your ear to hear our prayers. But we know that your word says you've done and do all these things. And so we thank you. And we ask now that you take these truths that for us seem so very foundational to our faith. Take these truths and, and impress them deeply upon our hearts and our minds yet again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. By way of introduction, I want to draw your attention to the Oxford Dam. Some of you thought I was going to say Oxford comma. That's another sermon. The Oxford Dam. This is, this is what I like to do with my family. It's my practice and has been for some time once I noticed it. Anytime I'm driving south on Highway 16 towards the river, as I begin to come down the hill towards the bridge, I'll, and it's hard to see this time of the year because of the leaves, but especially in the fall and the winter when there are no leaves, I'll say to Christy and the kids, look, at, look over the dam because you can see the water over the back of the dam, higher than the dam. Is, from that perspective, that's what it looks like. And you really, from that perspective, get an idea of what this man-made structure that we're about to drive in front of is doing. It has created what we call Lake Hickory. And it's holding back, right now at this very second, it is holding back all of the water of Lake Hickory. I don't know how many it is, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of gallons of water and pressure is held back by this dam. And it's pretty interesting from that perspective to think of it. This week we, we actually drove by and saw the water. Sometimes you can see the water splashing over the dam. In which case you wonder, why is that happening? That's not supposed to happen. 
this is how a hydroelectric dam works. Beneath the surface of the water, there's what's an opening, which is um, smaller, comparatively speaking, to the dam itself and to the lake itself, an opening called a pinstock. And all of that water that's being held back is, is pushing towards the dam, and then some of it is allowed to go through this small opening called a pinstock. And that, the pressure of the water actually makes the water go with force into the power plant, turn the turbines, which turn the generator, which then creates electricity. Now the Oxford Dam is not a, a functional power plant all the time. Nobody's living off of that dam, but some are. Some hydroelectric dams can generate electricity for millions of people. They're holding back water. They let, a, let it funnel through these turbines and it creates power. The scenes that we are looking at here in Matthew's Gospel, these final scenes, in my mind, are like that pinstock and like that turbine and like that generator of a dam. Behind this dam that we're studying is all of redemptive history, all of eternity as decreed in God from times eternal, before the world began. All of human history is backed up to this point and held back. All, every promise of God ever made, every type and every shadow that God has ever given, every word of special revelation, every sight and sound and smell in general revelation, every drop of lamb's blood, every ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, every turtle dove or pigeon that was, had its wings pulled from its socket on the altar, every footstep of a marching Israelite soldier, every song David ever wrote, every piece of wisdom that ever entered into the mind of Solomon, it, all of it is held back and piled up by the mighty dam of God's predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge. And here, in the death and the resurrection of Christ, it all funnels. It all comes here and is pressurized, as it were. And out of these scenes, the events that took place in the death and the resurrection of Christ, out of them come all power. Everything in heaven and on earth comes from here. The power to take countless enemies of God and make them sons comes from here. The power to take every saint and give them the ability to live a life worthy of the calling to which they've been called, it all comes from right here. All power to take an innumerable multitude of rebels, make them sons, sustain them in their love and faith and glorify them and keep them in that state forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It all comes from here. All power flows out of the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so to say that there is an inexhaustible storehouse of uh, riches, of edification, of spiritual food in these sections would be an understatement. And I hope you understand that. And I've, I've come to these passages with that in mind. It's not my intention to draw out of the death and the resurrection of Christ everything that is found here in a sermon or two. That's what I've given my life to, but not, not a sermon. And so I want to approach this portion, the narrative of the resurrection, much like we did the narrative of the crucifixion. Again, the difficulty is all of the Bible leads up to this, and all of the Bible comes out of this. And so you could come to this text and really go anywhere in the Bible, any text, and come back here. And start from here and go anywhere else and come back to here. All of it. So um, that, that's the difficulty of preaching these passages. But I want to look at it again from what I think Matthew is doing, which is giving sort of an apologetic defense of his assertion that this Jesus is the Messiah. He's defending these facts. So the question, just like last week, is did Jesus rise from the dead? Based on what Matthew's written... Did He rise from the dead? And then secondly, what does it mean that He's risen from the dead? A lot of people believe that he's, He rose from the dead. A lot of people last week spent the whole day probably talking about how Jesus was raised from the dead. 
but the meaning of it has not come home to them because their life on Monday was not different than their life on Saturday. To believe the resurrection has implications. It means something. And so that's what I want to get at today. Did he rise from the dead? And then what does it mean? So first, beginning in verse 1, we have what I think is sort of like a general overview of this whole scene Matthew gives us. He says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now the other gospel writers give us the names of more women. Mark 16, 1 and 2 names some other women. And so we are allowed to ask, why has Matthew named these two women only? Well, we can look back up at verse 61 of chapter 27 and see that these are the same two women that he named who were sitting opposite the tomb when Jesus was buried. We can look back up at verse 656 and see that among the women who followed Jesus from Galilee saw Him beaten and mocked and crucified, saw Him dead, among those were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, the two Marys. So Matthew has included these two women because they were specifically eyewitnesses of His ministry, of His crucifixion, of His death, all the way up to the placement of His body, Luke tells us. Remember last week? They saw how He was laid in the tomb. They could have said His head was facing this way and His feet were facing this way. These women have come, and the point is to anoint the lifeless body of Jesus with oils and, and sweet-smelling fragrances, which is what they would do for a dead body. These women have come not to find a live body, to find a dead body, because they are convinced that He is dead. And they know where His body is. These women are not confused. They didn't go to the wrong tomb, the wrong grave. They saw where He was laid. They went back to that same spot. Now, they, Mark tells us that they were sort of perplexed about one minor detail, which was, who's going to roll the stone away? They've got a group of women, this large stone, and they're wondering, who's going to roll this stone away? The Bible tells us that the disciples of Christ had rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So while the Pharisees and the chief priests were dealing with Pilate, getting a... a, a a guard of soldiers to secure the tomb, more than likely all of the disciples of Christ are at home somewhere resting according to the commandment. And so they probably don't know that there are soldiers, big, strong Roman soldiers who are going to be here and they're wondering, how are we going to get this stone rolled out of the way? But Matthew tells us in verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And here's where we begin to get into the resurrection narrative. We have again an earthquake, which we saw last week and throughout Scripture. An earthquake is in its most basic um, analogy a picture of God Himself coming in and working. God doing something on the earth. God is involved, and that's what I want you to see. God is involved in the resurrection. This is a divine work. It says an angel, there was an earthquake for, here's the reason for the earthquake, an angel of the Lord, a messenger from God, from heaven, has come down, sent on a mission, sent on a work that he's been commissioned to do by God. He's come down and has rolled the stone away and sat on it. And you've probably all heard commentators, they all say the angel didn't roll the stone out to let Jesus, or roll the stone away to let Jesus out, but to let the witnesses in. He didn't come to let Christ out. He was already raised, I believe, at this point, but he rolls the stone back. This angel from the Lord, sent on a mission, comes down. There is an earthquake accompanying his work. All of that lets us know God is involved. The resurrection is a divine work. God raised his son. Acts 2.24 says that God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 1 Corinthians 15, 15, we testified about God that he raised Christ. Hebrews 13, 20, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. I could add to that at least 16 more passages from the New Testament that tell us explicitly God, and sometimes even more specifically the Father, raised Jesus from the dead. 
Now, how do we reconcile that with Christ saying, I have authority to lay down my life and I have authority to take it up? This charge I have received from my Father? Well, I think it's simple. It is the singular divine essence fulfilled or, or filling the, the Son, all the fullness of the deity at the Godhead dwelling in the Son. That same fullness of deity dwelt fully in the Father. They're one singular divine essence. The triune Godhead has come down and is working in power and has raised Jesus from the dead. So keep that in mind. The resurrection is a work of God. Now notice how this angel is described. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now that appearance like lightning, clothing white as snow, we've seen that language before. This is at least to let us know this is a heavenly messenger. This is how Christ was described in the transfiguration. So this is a messenger from heaven, and it says, for fear of him. We put all the Gospels together, and, and I've, I've chosen specifically not to give a, a full synopsis of all of them, but if you put them all together, you find out that there were two angels at the tomb that day. Some of the, the uh, evangelists speak primarily of the one who was the spokesman for the two. But there were two angels, and they are described as young men. So these two young men are there. They're dressed in clothing that's white as snow. Their appearance is like lightning. And for fear of these two young men, these guards trembled and became like dead men. Roman soldiers who were experts in war, experts in torture, hardened and numbed probably to every sensitivity, had probably stared with delight and mockery and... and, and um, joviality at the mutilated mass of ripped flesh that was on the back of our Lord and countless other men, Roman soldiers. And they became like dead men. They collapsed on the ground, motionless, frozen with fear. But they're still present. They're still there throughout this whole scene. So these guards, for fear, and remember that word, fear, they fall to the ground... But verse 5 says, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. The angel gives comfort to these women, not to the guards. It's almost as if he's saying, Yeah, you stayed there. You should be afraid. You, don't be afraid. Why? Because I know why you've come. You've come to seek Christ crucified. The one, the crucified one. And that seeking, that motivation for coming here, seeking after Christ, is grounds for a word of comfort. These men, they're not here on the right mission. But you're here on the right mission. And so you can take comfort. Do not be afraid. He is not here. For He has risen, as He said. Come, see the place where He lay. Notice how the angel describes the resurrection. He has risen... As he said. We've already read these passages in Matthew 16, 21. He had said that on the third day he would be raised. Matthew 17, 23, the Son of Man will be raised on the third day. Matthew 20 and verse 19, he will be raised on the third day. We have three explicit references to Christ saying, I'm going to die. And on the third day I'm going to come back. Three explicit references. Now, if you go back to Matthew 16, the language is almost as if he was saying this a lot. He began to say to them. For a while now, he had been explaining to them that he must be crucified and that he would raise on the third day. But one of the other Gospels tell us that their minds were blinded, that they couldn't comprehend what was being said. They didn't get it. And so the angel starts by reminding these women that what has taken place is simply the fulfillment of what Christ had already said. He confirms the words of Christ first. He has risen as He said. Then He says, come and see. Have your sight confirm the Word. Their faith is to rest first in His words and then in their sight of the empty tomb. And so they were able to see the empty tomb. They were able to confirm 
what Jesus had already said. And this is important for this for us, and, and for them especially, because their faith has to be built preeminently upon the Word of God and not their experience. Amen. As He said, right. He's come back. And so we, we learn that they, are, they go in, they're able to see the empty tomb. These women who had saw how His body were, was laid were able to go in and see that the body's not there. It's gone. And the angel continues. He says, then go quickly. And tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And they're given a task to do. This is where those words that we have in Mark's gospel. The angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter. There's a, there's a lot of, of comfort and tenderness in what we're seeing. This messenger from God say to these women and, and, and have conveyed to the disciples... Tell his disciples. Now they left him. A disciple is a follower. One who comes and sits under a teacher, a student. They left him to suffer and to die alone. They abandoned him. And Jesus says, through this messenger, go and tell my disciples, his disciples. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And ran to tell his disciples. Now think about that mixture of emotions. Fear and great joy. The same word that was used of these Roman soldiers for fear of him. The same word the angel said, do not be afraid. They leave with fear but also with great joy. A strange mixture of emotions that can only be understood if you've been there and felt this. Sort of a... Probably a fear of the unknown and a great joy of e eager expectations. It's like, they, like when you know something really good and exciting is about to happen, but the anxiety of waiting on it to happen just causes you to, to be uncomfortable about it. I don't like this. This is why some people say, don't surprise me. I don't want to surprise. This is what they're feeling. Fear and great joy. They felt an earthquake... They've seen this astonishing sight of these angels. They've seen an empty tomb. They heard the words of the angels, which have probably caused them to reconsider the predictions of Jesus. And now they have to go and tell the disciples who all left Him. Other than John, they all left Him. They're all hiding right now in an upper room. They have to go and tell these disciples, He's alive. He's risen. So they're probably wondering, how are the disciples going to receive this message? And we learned that most of them thought it was a, a silly tale, except Peter and John, they ran. But, so these women are going. Verse 9 says, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. The man that they had watched die, they had watched His body be wrapped in a clean linen shroud. They had watched this body go into this tomb. They saw how it was laid. They touch Him. They take hold of His feet. They're touching His physical feet. They touch Him. Now compare that to having just before only seen an empty tomb. They could go and tell the disciples, He's risen. Well, how do you know? Well, we saw the empty tomb. Well, that doesn't mean He's risen. That just means He's not there. Now they've seen Him and heard Him and touched Him. More confirmation that Jesus is alive. Then Jesus said to them, verse 10, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Notice the same words of comfort. Do not be afraid. Tell my brothers... He's not ashamed to call them brothers. Men who had deserted Him, left Him. Peter who had denied Him three times. He says, tell my brothers. These men are going to be taught by these women who had never left Him. They were there the whole time. Another example of the patience and compassion of our Lord. It's beyond our comprehension. How we tend to be so harsh and lack so much sympathy with, with others. How would we respond to a professing brother or sister after we had watched them three times in public deny that they even knew Christ? 
Christ says, tell my brothers. He, he comes to them with compassion and tenderness because He wants them to come to Him. He doesn't want them to stay at arm's length. Now here's a rabbit trail that I think is important. Having our, mixed up our dates, we're able to look back and see how this past week has transpired in everyone's dealings with the resurrection, last Lord's Day. And I think this is important. We never see these women aspiring to be apostles or preachers at all. Not a, not a word of that. They, they never do. They're seeking after Christ and their sight of Christ was sufficient satisfaction for them. And they were pleased to do only what was commanded. That's all we want to do. They sought no fame. They sought no position. They sought no authority. We don't see them in Acts chapter 6 coming forward and saying, Hey, what about us? Well, don't, I mean, we got to tell the news first. Nothing. By using women as the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection and the first news bearers of the resurrection, Christ had no intention of making any public relations statement about the condition or state of women or their value in society or their equality with men. He did that in Genesis 1. That's already done. This, this culture, what they had right or wrong, that's not here. This is about Christ coming back from the dead. So if we come to a text about Jesus coming back from the dead and we say, man, look at, at those women. We've missed the point. There's nothing here about the placement of women in society. Men and women are both created equal in the image of God. We have different roles, but we're equal. And it's, and it's interesting, at the resurrection, the use of these women is actually a, an apologetic precisely because of their general position in society. If you're going to make up a, a, a story, fabricate a religion, you don't make your star witnesses people whose testimony is not legal in court. Now whether that was right or wrong in that culture, Matthew's not addressing. He's thinking, Jesus came back from the dead. Who cares whose testimony is legal in court? They saw Him. They touched Him. Now, one of the effects of the fall, God said to Eve, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's an effect of the fall, which means because of sin and the, the, the distortion that sin works in the hearts and the minds of men and women, women will have a desire to be leaders. They will have a desire to take the position of their husband in the home, starting in the home, and everywhere else in society. They will have the desire to do what men are called to do, and men will have the tendency to sit back and say, hey babe, go right ahead, you're doing a great job. And by the world's standards, very often women are very good at it. That's an effect of the fall. And modern evangelicals, ladies, are capitalizing on that effect of the fall and making a profit off of you by convincing you that if you don't act like a man, think like a man, know like a man, articulate like a man, that your spiritual contribution to the kingdom of Christ is at best worth less than a man and at, and at worst it's worthless. You've got to do, like, you do like a man does or you don't have any value in this kingdom. They're making money, you see. They're, they're generating uh, popularity for themselves by doing this. So let me say it again. Women who are truly seeking after Christ crucified, you know what they're going to find? They're going to find themselves crucified with Him. And they're going to come to the tomb and they're going to find Him raised. And we're going to see in a minute, they're going to find themselves raised with Him. And that's all the exaltation they're going to need. That's all that they're going to want. And it's the same for men. You've died. You've been raised with Him. Your only job is obedience. Just do what He says. And God is pleased with that. God, is, God does not want a woman to act like a man, to take the position of a man, to fulfill the role of a man. He's not pleased in that. He is pleased because of His Son, first and foremost, because He's been crucified and raised. He is pleased when a woman does what He has created her to do. He's absolutely satisfied first in Christ and then in His daughters. Don't, don't let the culture twist this. And that's a, that's a rabbit trail I, because it's not here. 
Anybody who preaches that from here, it's not here. So maybe that was a bad rabbit trail. But you see this stuff put forth in culture. And you think these people just want to sell books. So, the scene transitions. Verse 11 says, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, His disciples came by night and stole Him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, what's happening here, and the reason that Matthew is not afraid to include this in his gospel, some, some might see this as Matthew laying down a, bit, a little bit of offensive cover fire. You know, if you hear this story, it's been... It's been told a bunch. So this is, you're going to hear it. It's not true. But that's not why he includes it. He includes it because everything here is actually a vindication of the resurrection. Notice first, these soldiers had one job and they failed. One job. As a Roman soldier, that's punishable by death. In Acts 12, 19, two centuries are put to death because Peter escaped. In Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer is going to commit suicide. Why? Because if he don't do it, he thinks the prisoners have escaped. If he don't commit suicide, somebody else is going to come kill him. He'd rather kill himself than be killed by other Roman soldiers. This was punishable by death. So these men are going to go out and tell this story. Their, their, their comrades in the military are going to say, so how'd, the, how'd tomb duty go over the weekend? Well, we fell asleep and he got away. So why are you still alive? You see, it doesn't make any sense. Notice also that the elders, these religious leaders, took counsel together not to prove that the story was a fairy tale, but to cover it up with bribery. We've got to figure out how to cover up the real story. They don't, and that's it. So... They come, the soldiers, we can picture them coming and telling the story. So look, here's what happened. We were there, there was an earthquake. An angel came out of the sky. He was blinding like lightning. He rolls the stone away by himself. And we just, we got scared. And so we fell down and we're just there watching. We couldn't move. We were literally petrified. And these men don't say, you're insane. That's a crazy story. Who would believe that? Get out of here and go find that body. They don't say that. They say, whatever you do, don't tell that story. Don't let that get out. And so they offer them money to lie at the risk of death. They're betting. These men who've already proven themselves to be dishonest and, and bribers, they say, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, satisfy the governor and keep you out of trouble. Like they're, they're betting on that, these men. The people, these religious men, for whom these soldiers worked, Labor to cover up their failure rather than demanding them to find a body. You see, just find a body. Produce the body. The whole thing goes away. The only thing that makes sense is the soldiers believe the story and these religious men believe the story. If you don't believe the story, find a body. Get more soldiers, comb the city, get the body. Problem solved. But they don't do that. And then, to cap all of that off, we're given a story that doesn't even make sense. Tell them... His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. How do you know if you were asleep? How do you know what happened? You see, it's all fabricated. The whole thing makes no sense. The only thing that makes sense is the soldiers believed he was alive. These religious men, leaders, Pharisees and elders, they believe he's alive but they don't want anybody else to know that he's alive and so they work to cover it up. And Matthew includes this He's not ashamed because that validates the resurrection. So those who saw the body go into the tomb returned to that same tomb and found it empty. Those who found it empty heard, saw, and touched the one who was supposed to be in the tomb. Those commissioned to guard the tomb testified about the story. And those who stood to lose the most paid to cover the story rather than just find the body. Now, based on that very basic exposition of the Scriptures, did Jesus rise from the dead? 
See, that's what, that's what we have to determine. Not based on tradition. Not based on confession. Based on Scripture. Did he, raise, did he rise from the dead? That's step one. So, so we've gotten ourselves to step one. The, the place of many cults. The place of the demons of hell. We believe that he rose from the dead. Okay, that's, but that's not enough. We have to ask ourselves, what does it mean that Christ has been raised? Listen to the Apostle Paul as he elaborates on the importance of the meaning of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, and notice he doesn't say that part of the story doesn't, doesn't make sense. Or, that part of the story is gone. That's not what he says. He goes into the practical implications of the meaning of the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We were even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The Apostle Paul is willing to lay it all on the line and say if Christ is not raised, that doesn't just mean we have to come up with an alternate ending to the story. That means it's all done. All of it. None of it is of any value if Christ is not raised. So the meaning of the resurrection needs to be established beyond just the event which tends to tickle our mystical fancies because we like a good story. We have to establish the meaning because our lives right now depend on it. Our lives for eternity depend on it. What does it mean that He's been raised from the dead? It's amazing that when you read Matthew and then you read Luke or you read John, Matthew doesn't offer very much material after the resurrection. He gives this account. What I've read for you is pretty much all that Matthew cares to say about the resurrection. It's almost as if to Matthew... Eyewitness testimony to the resurrected Christ is enough in and of itself to explain and give motivation to every gospel application. In other words, Matthew says, He's alive. Go. He's alive. If Christ has been raised, the whole world changes. Everything in it changes. Every plan we make, every conversation we have, every life goal we have, every aspiration, everything in the world changes and has to be viewed through this light. A man has beaten death. A man has come back from the dead. So you say that you believe that Christ has been raised. That confession will be proven exactly to the, the drastic difference that your life has compared to those who don't believe it. If Christ has been raised, it means something. It means we live in light of it. So what does it mean? Just like the death of Christ. Other men can testify to it and give eyewitness testimony to it, but only God can tell us what it means that His Son has been raised. We've already seen God raised His Son. So what is God saying through that? Number one, the resurrection is a declaration concerning Christ's person. The resurrection is a declaration concerning Christ's person. Since Christ has been raised, we know this is the Son of God based on the resurrection. Paul says in Romans 1.4, He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. Declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection. God raises, his, raises Jesus. What are we to hear? God saying, this is my Son. It's a declaration. The resurrection of Christ by God is a declaration from God that Jesus is the Son of God. We saw those taunts of the Jews. Matthew 27, 43, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Now remember, the Father and the Son had conspired together. That now was not the time to be delivered. But the Father is still the Father. And the Son is still the Son. 
And God the Father is not some monstrous deformity of fatherhood completely detached from everything we might aspire to or consider as positive in fatherhood. He's the Supreme Father. He's not going to leave His Son to see corruption. He's not going to abandon His Son to hell. God's raising of Christ was God saying, This is my Son. This is my Son, the one who came and lived among you, who was meek and lowly, who didn't even have a place to lay his head. That's my son. My servant, who you crucified, that's my son. God says, this is my son. Even now, after all he's done, after all you've done to him, that crucified one, the once crucified one, he is right now my son. He's still my son. Even though I left him on the cross, he's still my son. God says, this is my Son, the Son of God, the only begotten, the only one of the same kind, Son of God, the Son, His only Son, whom He loved, the one who, he has, etern who has eternally been His delight, the one with whom He has invested all of His authority. The resurrection is God saying, this is Him. We all love to put our children forward when they, when they have an achievement, right? They learn a word. Say the word. Tell me, say, say the word. Oh, they're shy. They don't want to say the word. And we're, we're, as parents, we're just defeated because we wanted somebody to hear our kids say the word. How much more God, who says, look what He has accomplished. He raises Him up and says, this is my Son. The resurrection is a declaration that He is God's Son. And so all that He said was true, all that He's taught was right, all that He did was perfect. Every promise He ever gave is guaranteed. He is the fullness of perfection. He's the complete revelation of God to man because He's God's Son. If He's God's Son, then your dealings with the Son are dealings with the Father. God is honored by those who honor His Son. To please God the Father, you must kiss the Son. To reject Christ is to reject God, no man comes to the Father except by me, said Jesus, who is the Son. You see, the, the implications of this are practically endless. He raised Him up as a declaration of His person. This is my Son. Secondly, the resurrection is a declaration concerning Christ's work. A declaration concerning Christ's work. Since Christ has been raised, the demands of God have been satisfied... God having raised him. We saw a couple weeks ago, Romans 4.25, he was raised for our justification. Which means he was raised because all of the work required to fulfill all righteousness and thus impute to us a full righteousness has been completed. Therefore, he's raised. It's a declaration concerning his work. It's been completed and finished. So go back to what we saw last week. In his death, he was imputed the sins of his people. He was made a curse, cursed by God. All of that displayed by God. God was saying, I've laid sins on him. I've cursed him. I'm crushing him. Now how can we as sinners who have nothing and need everything, who were constantly at the mercy of God in any way be hopeful that God is not going to deal with us in the same way. That He's no longer going to deal with us according to our sins. We see how He treated His Son. If, if we get a fraction of that, we're goners. How can we be confident that God's not angry? I know I'm a sinner. How can I be confident that I can enter into God's presence with peace? How can we rest assured that God, God Almighty before whom we will all stand and give an account, how can we rest assured that all of His demands have been satisfied? I hate to go to the tag office because I know as soon as I walk in, they're going to tell me I didn't bring something I was supposed to bring. I've got my birth certificate, my driver's license, my social security card, my blue card to get into the prison. I've got everything. And they say, well, you've got to have $5 cash for the notary. I don't have $5 cash. How do we know we're not going to go before God and He's going to say, Oh, you missed it by that much. You, you, just, you only lack this much. The answer is the resurrection. God raised Him up. This is God saying, There's no more to be paid. 
If our sins had not been laid on Christ, it would not have been just for the Father to give Him the cup. And if Christ had not drained that cup to the very last drop, the Father could not have released Him from the curse. But in fact, Christ has been raised by God. A divine act. God did it. God declared it. God is satisfied. It wasn't as though the Son said, I'm getting sick and tired of being dead. I'm going to come back. No, God raised Him. In His death, Christ said, it is finished. And in the resurrection, the Father says, payment received. It's done. If there were still 1% left to be paid to the Father for the least sinner, He would have remained in that grave under the curse of death. But the work of the Son has fully satisfied the Father. There's nothing left to pay. That's what the resurrection says. It's a declaration concerning Christ's work. Thirdly, the resurrection is a declaration concerning Christ's position. Since Christ has been raised, then He is King of kings. God having exalted Him to that position. We read this in Acts chapter 2. Peter here, speaking of David, says, "...being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ." that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter's saying, David spoke of one who would be seated on his eternal throne. That's who David was talking about. When you read the Psalms, say, well, who's David talking about? This is who he's talking about. This one would be David's son, and yet David's Lord. This one would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This one would be pierced in his hands and his feet. This one would die, but he would not see corruption. He would live again. Jesus is that one. Therefore, Jesus Christ is the one who has taken his seat on the throne of David forever. He's king. Paul in 2 Timothy said, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. That's the point. He's the one who came back. He's the the one taking who has taken David's throne, as preached in my gospel. Ephesians 4.10, He who descended is is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. You see, by raising his son from the dead, the father declared that his son, the accomplished victor over death, has taken his seat over all things. He's been given a kingdom and dominion and glory that He shall reign until all of His enemies are made His footstool. The resurrection is God saying, See, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. There He is. Look at Him. He's king. Number four, the resurrection is a declaration concerning Christ's people. Remember that our union with Christ means that everything that Christ was carrying out in His life as mediator, He was doing for us as our substitute. It all has direct blessings to us. So our king has spoiled the enemy, who was our enemy. Our king has defeated death, who was our enemy. And since Christ has been raised, we too shall be raised because God raised Him. The Father would not raise the Son and then leave the many sons who were being brought to glory to themselves to figure it out on their own. 1 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. 1 Corinthians 15.20-22, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. If there are firstfruits, there are later fruits. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Everybody who is in Adam dies. Everybody who is in Christ will live. The grave slab for the believer has already been warmed over by the body of our Lord. It still smells of that sweet fragrance that was left there by His body. Death is not a terror to the saints. He's shown us death's a defeated foe. And so God, by raising His Son, gives us hope. 
God does not leave sons to fend for themselves. The father would not display his satisfaction in his son by raising him from the dead and then not also give the son the satisfaction of seeing the travail of his soul, of receiving the reward. We are the reward for his sufferings. We are that love gift, the bride given to the son. And so the resurrection is a declaration concerning Christ's people. We too shall rise from the dead. And then fifthly, a declaration concerning Christ's authority. Since Christ has been raised, God will judge all men by Christ. Acts 17.31 God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. God will judge the world. He will judge the world in the man Christ Jesus. And we can rest assured that that's going to happen because that man Jesus was raised from the dead. All he said was true. All he promised was sure and is sure, including his words that all judgment has been handed to the Son. Will our bodies die? More than likely, yes. Our bodies will die unless Christ returns first. Will our souls dissolve into nothingness? No. Is there something to be expected after death? Yes. How do we know? The man Christ Jesus has been raised. There's more to come. There's more life to come. The resurrection teaches us that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, has died in the place of sinners, satisfying every demand of God for our salvation. He now reigns over the universe as King. He will raise us up with Him someday, and all men will be judged by Him someday. Now all of that's the meaning, part of the meaning of the resurrection. Now the question is, how ought we to live if all of that is so? How ought we to live? What's the ought? Well, I'm going to... There are many things. I'm going to take the the words from the angel and the words from Jesus given to those who sought after Him. How ought we to live? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Matthew Henry says, Those that seek Jesus have no reason to be afraid. For if they seek Him diligently, they shall find Him. And they shall find Him to be their bountiful rewarder. Don't be afraid to seek Christ. And seeking after Christ and Him crucified is living and following after Him. It's living a crucified life after Him. It's not standing in one spot looking. It's going in the path that He has trod. That's seeking after Him, going where He has gone. Paul says in Romans 6, verses 10 and 11, For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's the ought. How ought I to live? Alive to God. Those who seek after Christ crucified find Christ raised from the dead and they find themselves crucified with Him and raised to live to God and not to themselves. Seeking after Christ is pursuing Christ in holiness. It's living His life after Him. As I said before, you can't have Christ's death for your sins without Christ's life for your holiness. He lives to God, so we live to God. So when it comes to living to God, which is the direct result of following Christ in His death, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of when it comes to things like mortified lusts, self-denial, being crucified to the world and the world to you? What are you afraid of? You see, the problem with living the Christian life, if you're a true believer, is not that you can't do it. It's that you don't do it. You won't do it. You choose not to. When you, when you think of mortifying a lust of the flesh, what are you afraid of? If you don't do it, it's because you've chosen not to do it. Are you afraid that you're going to be unhappy? 
without gratifying the desires of your flesh? Christ is our reward. Christ must be enough. We're seeking Him. We're not following after ourselves. We died. The life we live, we live to God. We're going after Him. When it comes to self-denial, are you afraid that life's just going to be too difficult if I deny myself? Well, I can't make it. I just don't know how I'm going to make it. A man came back from the dead. What are you afraid of? When you think about getting up 30 minutes earlier to give yourself more time to study the Word of God and to pray, and you don't do it, it's not that you can't do it, you don't do it, what are you afraid of? Fatigue? Jesus came back from the dead. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid if you really live as though the world were crucified to you and you to the world that they're not going to like you anymore? You should be more afraid that they like you still. What are you afraid of? He's come back from the dead. Divisions in our families. When it comes to standing up for truth, gospel truth, standing on biblical truth, knowing that my immediate family or my extended family members, they might spurn me. They might not want me to come around anymore. What are you afraid of? Jesus came back from the dead. Everybody abandoned Him. Job and career losses. When it comes to standing up for biblical truth, living the Christian life the way God has commanded us to live, walking in the, the ways that Christ has set for us to walk, and you think, well, if I do that, I might lose my dream job. Jesus came back from the dead. What are you afraid of? When you think about sharing the gospel with a coworker, well, they might not like me anymore. I might get fired. Jesus came back from the dead. What are you afraid of? There's nothing to fear anymore. What I've just described and I'm going to continue to describe, that is the Christian church from the beginning. They mortified their lust. They denied themselves. They were crucified to the world. Their families hated them. They lost everything. Read the Revelation. They lost it all. They didn't care. Why? Because a man came back from the dead. What have we got to live for in this world except Him? When it comes to putting off entertainment, contemplate turning off the TV and studying the Scriptures for yourself or with your spouse or your children, what are you afraid of? You're afraid of, well, I might not enjoy life as much. By pursuing Christ, I might not have as many laughs as I have when I watch the world glory in their debauchery and celebrate all of the things that God hates. That, that entertains me. It makes me laugh and I like it when I watch the news and I, I'm able to keep up with all of the gossip and everything that's happening everywhere in the world all at once. And if I can't have that, I just won't survive. What are you afraid of? This is how I check the weather. It's cold outside. It's warm outside. We don't, we're so terrified to live a crucified life. He came back from the dead. Postponing our earthly pleasures. Are you afraid that heaven is not going to be as enjoyable as this world? We are a kingdom of priests. Look back at the Levites. They didn't get an inheritance. And they didn't say, ah, oh, we don't get an inheritance. No, because God said, the Lord God is your inheritance. You get service to God. You give your whole life to it and you die. That was their inheritance. Glory will be more enjoyable than the fleeting pleasures of this world. Engaging our minds mentally in heavenly things. It's not that you can't, it's that you don't. What are you afraid of? That you're going to have to think? That your mind might have to go over the cusp of things you've thought of before? Might have to search the scriptures and, and pray and ask God to give you wisdom? This is Christianity. It's self-crucifixion every day until I die and then we come back from the dead. We, we go immediately to be with Him and then someday He will raise our bodies with Him. We don't have to be afraid of anything. Nothing. There's nothing to fear. The worst that they can do is kill us. And we're just going to come back. So when we give ourselves to the pursuit of the crucified Lord, if we really believe that He died and that He rose from the dead, we have nothing to fear. We can live our lives to God in true holiness and say, Christ is my reward. Christ is enough. I'm afraid that there might be some here for whom Christ is not enough. You, you can't give up this or that earthly lust, this or that pleasure, this thing. 
Because Christ is not enough. It's Christ and this. As long as I've got some assurance of a future salvation and then a little bit of this over here, I'm comfortable. But if I don't have this over here, this will never be enough. That's not going to cut it. Your unwillingness to live to God is proof that you've not died to sin. Because those who are crucified with Christ are raised with Him. And the life they live, they live to God. So, may we with fear and great joy go forward following after Christ, doing what we've commanded, what we've been commanded, knowing this, Jesus is alive. We don't have anything to be afraid of. Let's pray. The resurrection, remember, is a vindication of the death of Christ. In the Lord's Supper, we are commanded to do the Lord's Supper. And every time you participate in the Lord's Supper, you proclaim His death. The death is the centerpiece that holds all of this together. So take a few minutes while the elements are distributed and, and, and maybe even go back and forth between the death and the resurrection. Consider His body and His blood and what it means that He's been raised now and then we'll come to the table.